What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and today I'll be speaking with John O'Nolan, the founder of Ghost, which today is an open-source, nonprofit company that makes well over $60,000 a month in revenue. But in 2012, John was a WordPress developer who had become disillusioned with how bloated and complex WordPress had become. So he created some mock-ups and put together a concept page for a new type of publishing platform that would focus on one thing and one thing only, which is helping bloggers and journalists get their voices heard. Within three months, he had over 30,000 people sign up for his mailing list, so there's a lot to learn here about what it's like to find real traction and about the advantages that come with having domain expertise and working on a company in an industry that you actually understand. Meanwhile, John is traveling the world as a digital nomad. He's surfing all the time, building his company, and in general, just doing what he loves. So there's also a lot to learn about building the kind of company that you enjoy running that can last a lifetime. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Without further ado, I present to you John O'Nolan, the founder of Ghost. This episode is brought to you by SparkPost, the world's fastest growing email delivery service, trusted to send over 25% of the world's non-spam email. Built on AWS, SparkPost's robust cloud API lets apps and websites send and receive email, and is designed for the way developers work today. Sign up now and send 100,000 emails a month for free, forever, with all of the same features that come with paid accounts. Go to pages.sparkpost.com slash ndhackers to learn more. SparkPost. Start fast, deliver more, guaranteed. Hi, John. Welcome to the Indie Hackers Podcast. How's it going? Hello. I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for, for joining. I know it's a little bit short notice, but I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, for those who don't know, John O'Nolan is the creator of Ghost, which is a publishing platform that he first conceived of in 2012. You created a concept page that went on to basically just dominate the internet for a few days, and racked up like 100,000 page views, was at the top of Hacker News. Everybody was tweeting about it and talking about it. And that project went on to become Ghost. That's right. That's right pretty wild ride since then yeah and i've I've read a lot about like the beginnings of it and it was just so all the different numbers that you shared you ended up with thirty thousand mailing list subscribers after the first few months the number of page views that you got the number of articles written about it was just astounding and i'd love to start by talking about just that process how did you manage to launch such a popular concept page gosh i think there was, a, there was a lot of good timing involved or fortuitous timing, shall we say, but it wasn't, and I think this is probably quite key, the, it wasn't necessarily planned to be big. Um, I finally, at the end of 2012, reached this point in my life where I'd, I'd step back from some of the ambition or pressure that I was putting on myself of needing to come up with a big idea or a great idea to do something kind of monumental and had just resigned myself to the idea uh, or to the notion that if I could just work on something I really enjoyed that would pay me a full-time salary, then that would probably bring more happiness than trying to shoot for the proverbial moon. And so Ghost, as a simple, focused publishing platform, was an idea that had been in my head for the better part of two years, but that I'd always rejected because it seemed too obvious. You know, who wants yet another blogging platform? It just didn't seem like any kind of sort of revolutionary idea worth pursuing. And on this particular day, when I launched that concept page, I was in fact lying on a bed in an Airbnb, uh, in my underwear, um, in Brazil. And I was just kind of getting this idea out of my head that had been stuck in there for ages. And I thought, I'll just do some mock-ups and kind of design a blog post a bit like a product page. And if nothing else, 
then at least the idea will be out of my head and I won't have to think about it anymore. Thinking, you know, maybe a few hundred of my Twitter followers would see it, uh, something along those lines. So initially it was really just an exercise in in kind of um, getting rid of an idea, just trying to make it go away. And I honestly didn't expect it to go quite as crazy as it did uh, once I hit publish. I think it's awesome that you said that what you were really looking for was to get away from this pool of having to come up with some gigantic world-changing idea and just focus on something that could be a good business and support yourself financially because that's pretty much the entire idea behind indie hackers that you don't have to do this Mark Zuckerberg Facebook raise you know a billion dollars and take over the world or make nothing at all there's a lot of space in between that so I think that's super cool and also what you said about the idea being seemingly too obvious and so you didn't want to go with it or you were hesitant is really interesting because I've found talking to people that there's a lot of really obvious, straightforward, kind of unexciting ideas that end up being really good businesses and changing the world for the better. Yeah, definitely. And if you're passionate about one of those ideas, then it's uh, key. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're passionate about it, then you'll be motivated. You'll be motivated to keep working on it and actually see it through and do a good job versus doing a crappy job and not you know quitting halfway through. Yeah. Now, you've already done a text-based interview for Indie Hackers, which by the time this goes out will probably be on the website. And one of the cool things that you said in that interview was that Ghost is not a revolutionary idea, that it's in fact just a good idea, and that it came from years of experience and a clear understanding of the product and the wider industry. What was your background when you were coming up with the idea for Ghost, and how did you conceive of the initial idea? Yeah, so I think that's always been one of our strongest advantages, um, or at least my personal advantages as, as a founder, is Ghost was born out of just being very deeply rooted in the entire, uh, quote-unquote, blogging industry for many, many years before it actually launched. So I started out as a freelance uh, web designer, developer, and over the years just kind of found myself working more mostly in WordPress based on what my clients wanted. It wasn't kind of initially planned, but that seemed to be the most work I was getting. And that evolved from little local businesses and musicians all the way up eventually to uh, Fortune 500s, people like Nokia, Microsoft, Virgin Atlantic. But the consistent part throughout the story was always, uh, one, using WordPress and two, building blogs for these companies, whether it was their whole site was a blog or they wanted me to build their developer outreach blog or their gaming community blog or whatever it might have been. And so I, I just, for I think at the better part of basically five or six years, been building blogs with WordPress for companies. And over the course of that time, I uh, decided it would be a good idea if my entire business was based on building blogs with WordPress to get involved with the WordPress core community, which is an open source volunteer community who will create this software together. And over the uh, around a two-year period, became the deputy head of the user interface working group. So the group designing and, and developing the UI of, of uh, WordPress admin and helping do all that sort of thing. And I kind of watched as uh, WordPress grew up from these humble roots as a little blogging platform and evolved into this great big content management system, application platform, basically e-commerce system, like added all of these things, which are very, very cool and enabled all kinds of new websites to be built with WordPress, but which really uh, strayed away from that original use case of being for publishing and blogging that I was particularly passionate about. And so having had years of interactions with different kinds of bloggers, different kinds of businesses, the open source community itself, the wider WordPress ecosystem, I had so many different touch points of experience on 
what it takes to make a good product in this space uh, in terms of logistical requirements, in terms of what people want and don't want, where the common pitfalls are, uh, what things do and, and do not work. And all of those micro points of experience in some, it all brought together, were I think probably the most valuable to understanding what would be a good solid direction for Ghost initially and avoiding many of the inevitable pitfalls that would come along the way. You're in constant contact with people who were working with WordPress on all sides of the equation, whether they were clients or whether they were developers building WordPress sites or whether they were publishers or writers or journalists. At what point did you, you know, during your career of working with WordPress and becoming the deputy you had at the UI department, did you start to think that, hey, WordPress isn't what I initially loved, that it's getting away from its original roots of being focused on publishing and journalism and, and getting into a territory that you didn't like? So that was probably around the beginning of maybe mid-2011, I guess. I, I want to say it was around WordPress 3.1. And so 3.0 was a kind of a big milestone in WordPress is when it really started moving towards this new custom space of uh, now you had custom post types and uh, more things you could do in admin. It really started opening up its amount of use cases. And that was kind of exciting at first. And then by around 3.1, it became clear that there was just a different focus. There was this new focus for, for what WordPress was about and and that just wasn't publishing anymore. And that's, I think, I guess when I first started imagining, and I even have the the very first notebook I ever wrote anything down in here, and the uh, the title that I scribbled on the page was WP Lite, which has got to be the most unimaginative uh, name in the entire world. I wrote this list of uh, advantages and disadvantages of WordPress in its current state and, and what you might want to do if you were to reimagine it from scratch um, at that point in 2012, I think beginning of 2012, uh, if it was built with modern technology, uh, leave out all the kind of historical bloat and things that have just built up over the years. Uh, and that was the basis for it. So did you keep these ideas to yourself? Or did you talk to other people about your notebook and what you were thinking about and kind of bounce it off of other people too? I mostly kept them to myself. I found a hilarious old DM thread with uh, one of my other friends who was also a designer in the WordPress UI group called uh, Chelsea Odekan. And we kind of talked back and forth a little bit about the idea. And she was like, yeah, a lot of people have talked about this. No one's actually done it, though. And I think that message was what eventually like motivated me to do that blog post. But nah, no big, no big discussions. She told me at the time not to name it Ghost because people would read it as G-Host. <laughs> which in hindsight I find hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting that the amount of domain knowledge that you had that went into uh, Ghost as a product because I think a lot of people underestimate how important that is. And I've done a lot of interviews with people who also went on to create super successful products that skyrocketed in growth in their first year. And it's pretty common denominator that they worked in the industry for years before that. And they had all sorts of knowledge that other people didn't have I feel like there's also this this weird notion that's uh, perpetuated far too often where the only thing you you have to do kind of in this mindset is to spot a gap in the market or a missing product or a pain point that people have and then go and solve that. And and this is where like a million CRM tools come in because everyone, you know, looks at the business landscape and goes, oh, people don't know their customers. They have no good way of managing uh, their contacts. So what if we just built a really great CRM? Um and it's not a pain point they have, and they don't understand the CRM industry or maybe even the local businesses they're trying to serve, but they're just trying to come up with an idea to fill a gap without necessarily having any experience in that space. And I always say it's it's 
far, far, far easier to spot a gap in a market you're not a part of because you don't understand all the nuances of why that gap is unfilled. And often there are many, many reasons why a gap will go unfilled that are 100% valid and do not require fixing. And without being ingrained in an industry, it's you can waste years just figuring out that the gap you thought you were filling doesn't actually exist. And I've done that in past businesses before, and it's been a big lesson. Let's say you're in a position where you didn't necessarily have a ton of domain knowledge. Let's say you had to stop working on Ghost and start a new idea, but couldn't be in blogging or publishing. What would you do to come up with an idea? Would you join an industry and start working there? Or would you try to you know, research things from the outside in? You know, I think I would join something uh, and and try and figure out where the next idea would come from. I think there there are lots of different types of people and where they specialize in. I'm not a particularly great innovator, but I'm a great pull things together. Or I'm a great remixer, if you know uh, Kirby Ferguson and his documentary, Everything is Remix, which is fantastic. I'm very, very good. And this is maybe the only strength that I, I kind of... I'm confident admitting to is I'm very good at looking at lots of disparate ideas and taking the best parts from multiple places and combining them to form something new. That's, that's what I really, really enjoy is finding great ideas from lots of different places. And then what happens when you pull them together and put them into something new. And obviously the, the, you know, the obvious comparison here is like music where they're constantly sampling and remixing uh, different tracks. And effectively every modern song is a ripoff of kind of 20 old songs um, and I feel that way about modern technology, programming, design, all those things. I love taking existing ideas and, and recombining them, remixing them. So, but that means for me personally, first I have to go and be exposed to all of those ideas <laughs> um, rather than inventing a light bulb or something out of nothing. Uh, I'm not very good at that. That's not my strength. I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who can, but my thing is to is to just find those existing things that exist. Existing things that exist? Wow. Those existing things that you can, <laughs> you can spin and change and modify and see where they go next. That makes a lot of sense. And I think people who could just pull ideas out of thin air are extremely rare. Usually they have some sort of inspiration or thing that they've done that other people haven't done. And they just, like you said, remixed it into something. To that effect, I think when I look at ghosts in the early days, a lot of it seems like almost the opposite of remixing. It's like you took this huge behemoth that was WordPress and it was all sorts of things in one and you kind of like unwove it into one simple product. And you had a lot of discipline early on in keeping it simple. There's people would ask you, why can't I have comments in Ghost? And you said, you know, this is not going to be a native feature of Ghost. You can add your own comments, et cetera. Do you think that your discipline in keeping the product super simple in the beginning was one of the keys for it to be a success? Definitely. And not only from a business point of view, but also from a product point of view. And we can talk about that. But the, um, I think one of the great things which you just kind of highlighted there was, in fact, the first version of Ghost was 100% a remix of existing ideas out there. But what's great about this is you weren't exposed to all of the things that we were pulling from as we were creating this. So uh, when you describe it, it sounds like an unraveled, boiled down version uh, of WordPress. But when I look at it, all I can see is kind of the source material of things I pull together. But the inflection point or the difference between those two is that the things we pulled from, the ideas we pulled from were outside of the existing kind of um, blogging platform space, if you will. So they were 
ideas which weren't common to publishing platforms at the time. It was from somewhere else. Um, so great examples of this, the, the kind of the original dashboard we had in that first mock-up was almost a complete carbon copy rip of something called geckoboard.com, which is a, a kind of dashboard analytics visualization tool. The markdown editor was almost completely taken from a, a Mac desktop markdown editing suite called Moo or Mao, M-O-U. Um, which was great. There were just tons. Uh, there was uh, like our post settings menu was taken from Tumblr. There was other bits of UI which were taken from like a music app. Um, there are tons of individual pieces that were sort of taken from all kinds of places. And when you put them together, they're in some ways recognizable, in some ways not recognizable. But that being able to use that as a base and then keeping it incredibly simple moving forward to come back to your original question, uh, I think was definitely key. And if for no other reason then one of my strongest philosophies, and I don't have many very strong opinions or philosophies, but this one is really, really dear to my heart, is I very, very strongly believe that you will always get more of what you already have. And for that reason, it's incredibly important to be very, very conscientious about how you edit um, your life. And that can just be about you personally. It can be about the team you have. It can be about the customers you have or the product, in fact. So an example of this, if you currently have lots of users who are internet marketers and the internet marketers are sending you, they like the product, they're sending you feature requests like, hey, uh, we want to be able to track uh, click-through sales on blog posts to our conversion goals. And you go, okay, cool, I'll do that. I want to please my customers. I want to please my users. Um, I will fulfill that feature. They're going to be super happy. They're going to go and recommend your products to their friends who are also internet marketers. And then you will get more internet marketers. So by listening and fulfilling requests of this one user group, you will get more, by definition, of that exact same user group. And if you don't consciously choose who to say yes and who to say no to, you might end up in a place that's unplanned. So it's very, very important to always be very conscientious of where you're saying yes and where you're saying no. This is the same thing uh, when you're building a team. If you have a team full of white, male, affluent people, you're probably going to attract more of those people. By its very nature, people will be more comfortable to apply to a team where they feel like they are represented, they can be a part of it. So if you're not conscientious about choosing diversity very early on and creating a diverse team early on, then it's very hard to change trajectory later on. So being very cognizant of what we say yes to and then what the impact of that's going to be, what will be the trickle-down effect of that decision later has been really, really key to us, which is why we've very strongly, from a product point of view, said no to lots of features which we know would lead us down a path which we were not passionate about to either lots of, um, I don't know, e-commerce people trying to hack shops on top of a blogging platform, which makes no sense. Um, and trying as much as possible to always say yes to the types of user we want to have in future. So in our case, that's journalists or um, independent publishers, because if we please them, we will get more of them. And I try and filter this into as many of my decision-making um, points as possible as I go through life. That's fascinating. It's just, it's just about being conscious about the decisions that you make rather than allowing them to kind of unfold haphazardly. Uh, it reminds me a lot of, of talking to David Hauser um, a few weeks ago about his company Grasshopper. And at some point, I think five or six years into his company, the culture just wasn't where he wanted it because they'd never thought at all about like, what kind of culture do we want to have? And it just, if you don't think about it, it's not like you don't end up with a culture. It's just one that you don't want. There you go. So one of my favorite quotes in the whole world is um, by Jason Cohen, who's the founder and CTO of WP Engine, managed WordPress hosting company. Um, and he says, you either choose a culture or you end up with one. And I think that's that's so true. Even 
not choosing is a choice. It's just not a conscious one. And you'll probably end up with something that you didn't plan for in the beginning. But you either choose something or you end up with the result of your lack of choice. And making the choice, I think, is always a far more empowering and useful thing. One of the choices that you guys made was to keep the product super simple and super focused, which is difficult sometimes because in a lot of ways it opens you up to competition. And I've seen a lot of people launch a task managing app or maybe even a blogging platform or any other sort of app where in the beginning they're saying, we're going to make it simple and pared down and we're going to keep it very light. And then over the course of time, actually features sneak in and people start requesting different things. And people feel in a lot of ways that it's hard to stand out from the competition when your app is simple because it's easy for someone to clone you. And once that happens, what, you know, what real differentiating factor do you have? So with Ghost, how did you think about competition in the beginning? And I know you mentioned that you were worried that you know, the idea was maybe too simple, and so it took you a while to release it. What is it that keeps competitors from basically eating your lunch? Why do people use Ghost over alternatives? I would love to be able to say there's one silver bullet or one key thing, but in and I think in in some companies and products uh, there is a silver bullet or a key thing. In our case, I think it's lots and lots of little things which add up to uh, something bigger, and a big part of that is the. Uh, approach and the philosophy of the company. Uh, a massive amount of the early traction we got came from uh, this result of us saying we're doing this open source, we're doing this as a not-for-profit organization, and we're doing this because we believe in creating great publishing software, not because we're trying to get rich off it. And similarly, choosing to make it open source uh, so that anyone who uses it basically has full ownership and control of their own code having a fair business model, which is sustainable, knowing that the platform is stable going into the future, it's not going to disappear when funding dries up. All of these little things, I think, add up to something which is stable, forward-thinking, fast, and reliable. And yeah, there's there's no one key thing for us, that at least that I can point to. Those all sound pretty huge to me, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because it's, for example, you guys are number one on Hacker News for a long time. And the culture on Hacker News is very much in favor of open source projects and projects that have some sort of business model or sustainability so people know that they're not just going to be shut down in another few years. And the fact that you guys had all of this makes it no surprise to me that Hacker News embraced you guys, even when you only had a concept page, compared to other alternatives where I've seen people get upset and say, hey, I'm not going to use this because I'm going to have to put all of my data into it for years and then will it even be around, right? And what happens if the creator gets bored? How much were you thinking about, okay, what are, you know, who's my target customer and what do they need? Uh, so from day one, the, the passion was always have an impact in serious publishing and journalism. That's always been like the long term, this is where we want to go. This is what makes us excited and proud to wake up in the morning is the notion that a really important piece of journalism would be enabled uh, to be published and to spread and be read widely thanks to the technology we've created so that we could help uh, other people's ideas flourish and uh, have some kind of impact on the world. I've always said I don't have world-changing ideas, but if I can help people who do, then I feel like in some meta way I've helped enable that, and that's enough for me. But initially, you know, you can go in with all the intentions of helping journalism, but if you don't have the base technology there, then that's, you're just talking, you're not doing anything useful. So while that was the long-term goal, the first few years were really just solve um, our own basic use case, which is we need a platform. <laughs> it needs to be able to publish posts. You need to be able to log into it. Like there's so many 
uh, nuances and basics that need to be in place first before you can even start thinking about what kind of interesting features you could build for a long-term use case. And particularly coming into a brand new technology area, so in our case, Node.js, and we were on that uh, proverbial technology train very, very early. I think we were the first big consumer open source Node.js project uh, in the world, and now I think still the largest. There were all these things which are traditionally you would think easy to do like uploading and resizing images in php super easy that problem and in ruby that problem's been solved a million times like there are existing libraries you pull them together and you can build out this feature set very very quickly in a young node.js industry there was and still is so much stuff missing because it's still a young technology it's still catching up and there's still a lot of basic things that are not easy to do uh image resizing is still one of them by the way so we had a lot of early hurdles just to kind of getting base parity for this platform. So the, yeah, the first set of goals was just create a platform that works for our use case, simple blogging. And once we get there, then we'll talk about what's next. And you mentioned that you had this big focus early on on open source and, you know, that you weren't in it for the money and that you really wanted to contribute to, to the actual movement of, of improving journalism, helping people get their word out. How does Ghost make money? Because I know today you guys make $750,000. When you have a mission like that, and when you're based on open source, what kind of business model do you have? Yeah, we're a complete black sheep of, I think, any type of business. We're a profitable, non-profit company which releases software for free with no copyright. <laughs> it makes no sense. <laughs> paradox of, of everything. So I when we, did the, when we launched on the Kickstarter campaign, I had this... Uh, notion of a sustainable business model that I thought would work. And at the time, this was not real. This was just an idea in my head. There was no reason to think this would actually work other than, as we touched on earlier, the experience of seeing other similar things in different industries and piecing them together into an idea of uh, what if we took this from over here and this from over there and combined it, that would probably work. And the so the idea for this kind of sustainable open source model, as I call it, was that we would hire great developers who would make free open source software, which would be given away because that software or the app in this case uh, is really good. It would attract a whole bunch of users who would want to use it. Now you need a server to run this software. So a bunch of people would use their own server, but a bunch of people really don't want to waste their time managing servers, regardless of how technically proficient they are. So they would probably need like some really solid managed hosting, a platform as a service, um, which is just a click and go situation, fully optimized, runs the software in the best possible way it can ever be run. So if we offered that uh, platform as a service on a, a monthly subscription fee, then even if we captured a small percentage of all of the great users, that would generate revenue. And we filter all of that revenue back into the parent not-for-profit organization. Uh, that would then be a source for the nonprofit org to be able to hire more great developers who'd be able to make more great software, which would attract more people who would need more hosting, who would pay more money, which would fund more of the not-for-profit organization. And so the cycle is then established and continues and it becomes virtuous rather than detrimental. So with each loop, it gets stronger, um, becomes a stronger model and a stronger cycle rather than diminishing like in a, a kind of venture capital style where you're just constantly running out of money and burning through it and increasing your burn rate to, or your growth rate to match your burn rate. It's the opposite of that. Yeah, you're really bootstrapping. You've got kind of this self-funding process where you're reinvesting your profits back into other parts of the business to make it even better. Super weird, right? In the rest of the entire world, that's a very normal cycle. In the technology space, that's kind of an anomaly. Um, <laughs> so once we we got the Kickstarter funding, uh, 
and as a nonprofit, you, there's no other way to take funding. You can't take venture capital. Obviously, you have no shares to sell. And weirdly, banks don't want to give you loans because nonprofit organizations are considered high risk for some reason. So we effectively had this seed funding of about $300,000 $300, to prove this business model. And once that money was out, that was the single piece of runway, and that was the end. So we knew we had a fixed timeline to either prove or disprove this idea and this business model. And at the 11-month mark, 11 months from the end of the Kickstarter campaign, or 11 months from when we started doing business, uh, we did. So we had turned our first month's profit, which I think was about $200. And we've been in the green ever since then. Awesome. There's a lot that you talked about there. You talked about your platform as a service solution, which which you guys would actually host the ghost publishing software for people and charge them money for it. And you also talked about, and I kind of want to go back to that, so don't let me forget about that, but you also talked about raising money on Kickstarter. And this just goes back to like the explosive early days of Ghost because you had the idea, released a concept page, you got tons of mailing list signups, and then a few months later you had a demo and a Kickstarter page that also, I think your initial goal was what, $30,000, and you ended up raising $300,000. It just blew it out of the water. Yeah. How did, how did you do that? Was it just because your product was so so much more compelling than anything out there, or did you guys have like a sustained marketing push that so this is one of those things where, in hindsight, it's it's easy to look at it and go, ha, huh, that was a really good idea. And that actually aligns with a lot of the things that people talk about as being stuff you should do. But at the time, was it just felt like a very natural progression. And it was really a series, I guess what marketers would call a series of launches, but in my head was just the most logical progression for how you would do this type of thing. And it was this idea of continuously building an engaged audience who wanted to hear more about the product. So uh, like we talked about, there was that initial blog post in this page, which hit Hacker News. And just on the off chance, in fact, no, I think I didn't even add uh, an opt-in form to that post initially, but when it started going crazy on Hacker News, I quickly added one. Um, And so... I started collecting email addresses straight away. If you want to hear more about this in future, if I ever do anything with it, enter your email address. And so from the Hacker News initial posts, uh, traffic that generated, I think, around 30,000 subscriptions right off the bat. A few months later, when we decided to launch on Kickstarter and we had this prototype built, uh, okay, well, who are the first people who are going to be most interested in hearing about this? Like, clearly those people, they've already opted in and said, tell us more, like, if you end up building this thing. So then we emailed that list of 30,000 people like, okay, this exists now. And if you want it to really be released as a stable piece of software, back this Kickstarter campaign, which was a huge, huge boost to those early uh, hours of the Kickstarter funding campaign and was a big part of what got us to being fully funded in 11 hours. But of course, all of that exposure of the Kickstarter campaign, which generated more press and more interest, uh, also generated more traffic and when that traffic came and discovered the Kickstarter campaign, they either contributed or we had an opt-in form. Sign up if you want to find out when this thing launches. And so the exact same cycle repeated. And after the Kickstarter campaign, uh, again, we did this kind of soft launch, which was to Kickstarter backers only. But if you came to the site, you couldn't get the software yet. But there was this opt-in form that said, leave your email address and we'll let you know when it's ready. So to cut a long story short, over this kind of year-long period and incremental launches or announcements, we amassed something like 80,000 email addresses of people who had opted in to find out when this thing was live. Not we're trying to spam them and tell them about something that they don't care about. They had told us they want to hear about it. So on launch day, we had 80,000 people to email. And the net result of that was 100,000 signups on day one, completely organic, without any what I would call marketing push of kind of 
uh, advertising or really trying to force the word out there. It was all inbound, effectively. And this just felt logical to me. Like it felt like the, the clear thing to do. But apparently this is a real strategy that people use. <laughs> <laughs> What's striking to me about it is, is how effective it was. Because there are also people who will use that strategy and they'll gauge interest with the blog post or you know a concept page and then they'll collect email addresses and then send emails to those people to let them know about the next thing. But just the massive numbers that you had, I mean, it was like something else was going on behind the scenes where it was maybe the right time for you launching, to launch the idea or maybe on the right forum. It was just people really, I mean, 30,000 email subscribers is humongous. I always say um, real traction is like true love. It's very hard to describe, but you'll know it when you see it. And I'd worked on a, a whole bunch of uh, companies and products before Ghost where I thought I had traction. I, th- I, th- I thought I did. Like there were some... I found old press kits where we bragged about like 10,000 page views in the first month. And then when you compare that to Ghost, which was like 10 million in the first week or something, it completely eclipsed. It was just a different plane of reality. And I think once you hit an idea that resonates with a wider group of people, it's immediately obvious. You immediately feel that you're onto something. When I felt that for the first time, I knew like, okay, this is the time to put all of my client work to the side, live off my savings, and now work on this idea because I've never in my life had a response that strong. And I think if anyone is wondering like, okay, do I have that traction yet? No, you probably don't. Because if you did, honestly, you would, you'd know it. Like it would be like nothing you've seen before or felt before your inbox would be full. And it's always, again, easier in hindsight to be able to figure out and identify, but it was such a dramatic difference to anything that I'd touched before. Yeah, I've, I've been in a similar situation before. It's extremely impossible to ignore it or to wonder if it's happening because it's just orders of magnitudes bigger. And I think that that principle can be kind of distilled down to like a smaller level too. Like if you're doing, let's say you have five different marketing strategies and one of them is getting you 10 times the number of hits as all the others should probably double down on that rather than spreading yourself then over, over all these other things that aren't working, you know? And if you have an idea that's amazing and you're getting all sorts of, your inbox is full, like you said, and you're getting millions of page views, you should probably quit your consulting job and work on that because you've actually hit on something that's really real and true. I think this also comes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, having that deep experience of a particular industry. I think that the the natural evolution of that or the natural result of that is that when you have all of that context built up, what you build and the way you communicate it inherently touches on all these points. So it will touch on the key pain points and it will avoid the things which are unimportant so that when people do arrive and read about the idea or see it for the first time or whatever – it has a very, very high chance of resonating because it's it's clear that you've kind of been able to think through a bigger picture. And I, I almost don't think that's something you can plan. It either just kind of happens or, or doesn't happen, depending on, on how deep you really are into this problem. How long would you say that did your kind of industry domain expertise in the area remain super useful to you? Because I know it was like extremely helpful in, in, in deciding the initial product, but was there a point during running Ghost where it was you were no longer kind of coasting off of this old knowledge and you're having to, to learn a whole bunch of new things in order to make Ghost itself a successful business? Yes, definitely. And that's such a great question. I would even go further than that and say there's a point at which uh, that old knowledge becomes detrimental uh, because you there's a possibility that you hold on to old ideas and old truths without questioning them enough. Uh, so good examples of that... Um, 
initially when we just very 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 simple level initially we structured the the ghost kind of application directory structure in a similar way to WordPress because we knew people would be familiar with it. Same with our theme API. We we picked structures similar to WordPress because we knew people would be familiar with it. It would be easy to learn and it, it was a quick decision that was simple to make. Like, how should we do it? Okay, let's look at how popular platform does it already. That's probably a good benchmark to start with. But then at a certain point, you realize structuring a Node.js project like a PHP project inherently creates some limitations and confusion further down the line. And similarly, holding on to ways in which older platforms do things inherently holds you back from discovering new ways of doing those same things. So there's there's definitely a point, and I, I don't necessarily think it's a single point you reach, but it's definitely important to recognize as you go when ideas are holding you back and need to be changed and adapted for the new thing. In terms of how long, I think, I don't know, I think we coasted on good, solid, old experience for a year and a half or so before we started needing uh, to really relearn and rediscover some of those parts and, and build them our own way. And when did you guys end up launching your uh, platform as a service offering and actually start charging people money for that? Right. So from initial blog post that hit Hacker News, it was six months to kickstart a campaign. Uh, from Kickstarter campaign to launching the first version of the product was uh, probably four months. Yeah, four months. And then we had another two months uh, until the platform as a service uh, launched. So the whole timeline of kind of initial idea to everything running as a business was about a year. What was it like launching the platform as a service part of it? Because I know it was kind of a turn, it had to be kind of a turning point in the business because it was the first time you actually started charging people money for an actual product. For us, it was planned from day one. So even in the Kickstarter campaign, we talked about how this was going to be the business model. And then when we launched the product, the, the platform as a service was already firmly in development. I think it was actually already in beta. We we're already testing it. So it didn't feel very monumental at the time. It just felt like a very natural progression. This is the plan we had. We're going to fulfill it. But certainly seeing those those first few customers come in and, and starting to have a number of MRR as being representative and a growth trajectory, which would give us an indication of whether we were going to hit break even or not, was exciting. Very, very difficult to appreciate that excitement um, at the time. You're so deep in in the trenches of just uh, trying not to die uh, early on in, in a startup's life. You're just going from one thing to the next thing and trying to survive, trying to stay alive. What I was curious about was if there'd been any particular strategies you guys have had to use to grow your revenue or has it been kind of like a constant percentage of people who have always just filtered off into the, you know, the platform as a service offering rather than doing the self-hosting thing? Um, our growth has always been very stable and very organic. It's certainly not exponential. It's not even uh, high by kind of Silicon Valley SaaS startup standards. Um, but it's been very, very, very consistent. And we've essentially never done any real, what I would call real marketing. Um, experimented with like a couple of ads a few times, never really paid off. We haven't done a great deal of, of content marketing or anything like that, just because we haven't figured out a way that uh, kind of feels good for us. So it's it's always been incredibly organic and the things we've tried haven't moved the needle that much. So we've really, uh, since kind of realizing that, just tried to focus on the products, the users, the community and where we're going and figure that if people are consistently using us and finding us and recommending us because of how good the product is, then maybe that's the area where we should focus on the most. Not saying that's a good thing. I think we could probably do more and better in the marketing department. It just hasn't been uh, a focus so far. 
Yeah, I mean, I've I found similar things to be true with indie hackers. Nothing really moves the needle in terms of growth, like just posting a really great interview and having people talk about it and share it organically. Like it's been weeks posting bad interviews on Reddit and Hacker News and spamming every other forum, and it won't move the needle nearly as much as just having good content. So one of the really cool things about Ghosts that I think a lot of people don't know is that you built the company remotely. When you first built it, you were basically traveling the world as a contract developer, right? Yeah. And you continue to build a remote team and hire people working remotely and travel yourself, right? Exactly right. Yeah. I'm in Thailand, in fact, right now as we're talking. What's your philosophy behind that? Is it just that you enjoy traveling or is it that you think it's the future? (laughs) Um, Not quite. I'm not... I'm not the Peter Levels of uh, <laughs> of the blogging world, I don't think. No, for me, it's actually... In fact, lots of these early decisions of Ghost were less consciously chosen and more kind of... It just felt like the obvious thing to do. This was clearly the way we were going to go. And from this point of view, uh, there are a couple of factors. So I, I grew up all over the world. I'm, I'm technically English-Irish, but I was born in Scotland. My first language is Dutch. I lived in the Philippines for seven years, Austria for two years, Egypt for three years. When people ask me where I'm from, I honestly have no idea. So I've always traveled. I've never really lived anywhere for any particular length of time. Um, I'm not really sure what the word home means, but I understand it means something to some people. So I've always done, I always did back in the day, all my, all my freelance work remotely. And even when I was in the UK for an extended period of time and I had British clients, uh, I still wouldn't go to their offices. I'd still be working remotely just from a distance of, you know, 10 or 20 kilometers rather than 3000 to my clients in the States. So it was, it was, and then contributing to WordPress was the same thing. Everyone's all over the world contributing, uh, code, open source. That's just how it works. So it was, it was like, clearly this is the obvious way to do things. I've always traveled. I've always worked online why would you ever, what would be the point of having an office? What advantage would that have? So yeah, it was just like, clearly this is, this is what we're going to do. And um, it feels good. I feel good about it. I think remote work is 99% awesome and 1% really hard. And that 1% is the contextual water cooler, um, just getting to know people by, based on their body language and their facial expressions and the random conversation that you have while making a piece of toast uh, that leads to a great idea. Like, that's the only thing that I really miss from in-person meetups, which we try and counteract by every six months we get the whole team together and do a trip somewhere in the world. Uh, the last one was here in Thailand. The one before that was in Austria. And try and spend 10 days together just kind of binging on that time together of contextual awareness and knowing each other uh, that then always helps in the subsequent six months of working together. Yeah, I love remote work. I've done a lot of contract work as a developer, and I always put in my thing, like my contract, like I'm allowed to work remotely (laughs) whenever I want, even when I'm contracting for a a company that's in the same city that I live in. And it's funny that you said that you've kind of always been remote your entire life, because I wanted to ask you, you know, what things make remote work harder and more difficult than the alternative, but it sounds like you haven't really had the alternative that much, but the, uh, (laughs) right. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what is your, on a more personal level, what kind of philosophies guide you in running your business and and being a founder? Because I know there's so many challenges, psychological challenges with being a business owner and being a founder and trying to manage a bunch of people and run a product that's used by tens of thousands of people. So what gets you out of bed in the morning? Do you, do you meditate? Do you like to read books? Ah, I love I love learning things constantly. But uh, I think if there's one key philosophy that drives um, 
everything and that really filters into everything we do. It's it, it's kind of embodied in the question, and it's one that I get a lot of. Why is Ghost a nonprofit organization? It's in fact, it's whenever people learn about the company for the first time uh, in person, I say oh, it's a not for profit organization. They say what? Why? Why would you? Why would you do that? To which my recent answer has been, well, why would you run a for profit corporation? And there's there's kind of no good answer to either, I think. But I spent the majority of my early life being very ambitious and wanting to become a millionaire. And I'd set age 26 as kind of my, I don't know why, it was just my arbitrary goal of that's when I wanted to hit it by. So I was always trying to come up with big ideas, but the, I, I always played this game in the back of my head. And I think we've all played this game. And it's the, what if you won the lottery game? What if you came into a massive amount of money? How would that impact your life? What would you then do with it? And the beginning that game is super fun and super easy because you're giving your boss the finger, you're buying a Ferrari and then a Lamborghini and then three houses. And it's, you know, this utopian kind of, I have no problems model. And then the game gets a little bit harder, but still fine. Like, okay, so what would you do next? Okay, maybe travel a lot, learn a bunch of stuff, give money to charities. Uh, and then it gets a lot harder. Like, how would you fulfill your time and then, you know, maybe try and build a family, but that's not really dependent on money anymore. Maybe start a company, but then that's only slightly dependent on money. And then at a certain point, it gets very, very hard because at a certain point you realize you could burn through all of that lottery money, quote unquote lottery money in the space of, I don't know, for me, three or four years, I could buy all the things, do all the things, but then what next? What next? You wake up on a Saturday morning, it's sunny outside, you have nothing to do, but you still have 50, 60, 70 years to live your biggest concern is no longer money. It's not a question of how do you want to spend your money. It's a question of how do you want to spend your time. And no matter how much money you have, that question remains true. And at a certain point of playing this game over and over and over again, I eventually realized sitting on the small beach in the Philippines uh, with a couple of new friends kite surfing that I would be doing exactly this. If I got to that point, how I would spend my time is like this. I would have the freedom to travel, the freedom to hang out with really nice, uh, cool people who I enjoy spending time with, and the freedom to work on cool open source software that I felt was meaningful to me and that I enjoyed working on. And in that exact moment, I realized I do not need to be a millionaire to achieve that goal. I was already living that lifestyle. I was already living my end goal of what would you do if you became a millionaire on a very, very average, in fact, below average by kind of San Francisco standards, freelance web developer salary. And when I finally hit that realization point, it really freed me up and took all this pressure off my shoulders in terms of criticizing my own ideas. And this is what led to uh, Ghost even being conceived as a possibility was, okay, so all I need now is an idea that can pay me a very fair full-time salary. I mean, even if you want to be generous and say, I want 150K a year, okay, well, that's not a lot of money in, in SaaS terms. You can build a business that makes 150K a year pretty easily and achieve all the things you want to achieve. So what is it? Is there stuff in life that you really need that is more than a decent salary? And then why? And if you look at the big data on this, you know, the, the happiness curve of how income uh, affects your actual happiness, it absolutely flatlines above about $100,000 a year. So do you really want to be a millionaire? Is that really what you want? And if not, then what, how does that impact your ideas? What different ideas would you have if you changed your life goals from being financial to being time-based, from being how much wealth do I have to how much time and freedom do I have? And then my subsequent kind of step from there was, okay, what if you tried to build a business 
of a group of people on the exact same philosophy. So what if you tried to build a company that set out at its core to not make a whole bunch of money for its shareholders? What if you did the exact opposite? You tried to make a company that did not make as much money as possible. How would that affect the decisions of the product, of the team, of the perspective, of the outlook? And then suddenly that problem seems super interesting. Like, okay, wow, it would be all about the customers and the users. And there would be no external pressure from shareholders or investors. There would be no pressure to sell or achieve a valuation or a certain revenue multiple. It would simply be something that exists in a pure independent form by itself and is able to keep itself going as long as it's doing a good job for its stated mission to serve its users and customers. And each step or um, each step that we've made over the last four years has been an evolution of this philosophy of, I don't need to be very wealthy and I know it won't make me happy. And Ghost doesn't need to be an extremely large corporation. I know that won't make me happy either. So if we just take away those things as goals, what is the end result? And what I optimize for constantly is more time, more freedom, and more happiness. And those things, um, in aggregate, feel really, really good to me. And I, I, if I have one wish for the world, it's that we can see a bit more of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm huge on uh, spending my time the right way and, and, and having freedom. And I think it's really inspiring to hear, to hear someone in your position have the same, the same goals and the same ideals because I think in Silicon Valley especially there are very few people that I've met including my own younger self whose goal is not to be a millionaire by age 25 26 and the narratives that you hear in like you know that you see on TechCrunch that you see in any tech magazine or in movies like the social network totally reinforces that it's you have to do this to to be a success so this is what a success means and it's either zero or a billion dollars and so I think it's awesome to be able to talk to people like you on indie hackers who have a business that's doing really well and who are living awesome lives and don't need to have some sort of world-changing billion-dollar idea. And I hope that more people come to that realization because the number of businesses that you can build when you don't lock yourself into you know, this crazy, unrealistic goal is huge. Um, and then the, the ways that you can live your life are, are obviously a lot better. And I think the products that you build are higher quality products too because you don't end up having, like you, like you hinted at, this perverse financial incentives to build something that extracts every last dime of money from your customers rather than building something that they actually like. And a lot of ways that's a competitive advantage. If all of your competitors have to make some sort of crazy multiple on revenue in order to be viable, where you can put customer satisfaction as your number one priority, then you're probably going to have a better product. Agreed. And what I find crazy slash hilarious about all of this is when you talk to the the Silicon Valley based founders who have had a big exit, who have had that unicorn growth and big chunk of change come their way. Are they happier? <laughs> I, I've yet to meet one who's insanely happy and has had a successful exit. The more, the more common story I've heard is being sad about how the product turned out due to the, the market they ended up in and now wanting to approach what would previously have been called more of a lifestyle business, but something where they have ultimate control over the whole thing and, and more freedom of their time. So you can follow this trajectory uh, in other people's lives and see even the ones who who hit this big success, this sort of ultimate unicorn end goal, that doesn't sound that great. And it seems like they still come back and try and do the thing which was simpler and, and easier and smaller uh, from the beginning. And to me, that's a very clear indicator that that's the right way to go. It's kind of like this weird catch-22 where if, 
if you work on something that you really like working on and then just sell it to another company, then you'll probably be upset because then you gave up your baby that actually made you happy. And if you work on something that you don't like working on, then you're, it's not going to be a success anyway. <laughs> so you, you need to actually just keep the thing that you're passionate about and do it for its own sake. So I want to ask you a couple more questions before we end. Uh, one of them is about mistakes and challenges. So if you could go back in time to 2012, knowing everything that you know now, is there anything differently you would do with Ghost in order to make it you know, maybe grow faster or avoid some mistakes that you made? There's a couple, couple of really big things. Uh, the ones that always come to mind most quickly, we launched right around the time that the cloud, quote unquote, cloud was becoming ubiquitous, but wasn't quite there yet. So our first uh, version of our hosted platform, we had hardware servers uh, and invested, I think, I don't know, $40,000 or something in hardware servers and thought that was the way to go. And it was basically right just at the end of that era where that would have been a good decision, I don't know, three years beforehand, but was a terrible decision now. We ended up having to sell them a year later at a loss and migrate to DigitalOcean, and it just wasn't a fun experience. And that was just generally poor. The The big one, though, was using... So we, after the Kickstarter launched, my co-founder Hannah and I spent all our time building the products, uh, the publishing platform, and we subcontracted out our business website with the billing system and the user platform and the hosting system uh, to an agency because we simply did not have enough time to do everything in the space of four months after the Kickstarter. And they built everything in Ruby on Rails, which is fine. Uh, no particular issue with Ruby on Rails, just that neither Hannah nor I know Ruby on Rails, which turns out to be a key problem. So we had ended up with a team of JavaScript developers where our entire business infrastructure was running on a Ruby-based platform and we were unable to maintain it. So every time something went wrong, which of course it always does, we would either have to subcontract in more help uh, for a lot of money or be kind of screwed. And it, and then the, the problem of having all this traction right at launch date is you immediately are locked into whatever decision you made because suddenly now uh, you can't just swap out this thing or kill it or do something new because you have $300,000 of revenue and 3,000 customers who are all sitting on this thing. You can't just pull it out and put in something new. There's all kinds of crazy migration and uptime and, and all the stuff that has to be considered. So it really backed us into this very difficult corner that effectively took us about three years to get out of um, just because of one poor early decision. Uh, so that's probably the one thing I would change. On a brighter note, what kind of advice would you give to to an indie hacker, an entrepreneur who maybe know, has an idea or has a product and is hoping to grow it into something bigger. Sounds so cliched, but just go and do it. Uh, I think it's a slight detriment of the state we've ended up in of the how cool startups are now, that there is an absolute saturated market of advice and tips and books and strategies and things to go out there and find. And I've seen a lot of early founders or people who would like to be founders just get completely stuck in feeling like they don't know enough and they need to read all the things. They read the Lean Startup, then they read the, the Startup Owner's Handbook, and then they read everything by Paul Graham ever, and then they um, read every blog post by Sam Altman, and then just end up in this loop of reading and reading and reading and reading and learning and researching, but not building. And then it's very hard to get out of that cycle because it reinforces this idea that you don't know enough, therefore you need to learn more before you start building. And so I think my, my single strongest message would maybe be that none of us have any idea what we're doing. Um, 
people at small levels of success, such as us, people at big levels of success, such as, I don't know, Slack or Microsoft, no one has any idea what they're doing. And if you look behind the curtain of any of these companies, you will see dog-patched bits of code which will fall apart at the slightest poke and push, and things which haven't been fully thought through in any capacity and just are that way because they are that way. And what you have to internalize is that the difference between the people who make it and the people who never start is at some point making a leap of faith into the unknown and being completely terrified whilst making that leap, but making it nevertheless. And having that initial drive to jump is probably the most important thing you can do. And you know what? If you fall flat on your face, uh, and you probably will, you're going to learn from it, get up, do it again. But you will learn nothing from just reading constantly and not actually experimenting and trying new ideas. So you probably know enough already. And even if you don't, that might even turn out to be an advantage. Naivety sometimes uh, is a huge advantage. If you could see how high the mountain was before climbing it, you might not begin on the journey at all. So get out there and just start walking. Yeah, as someone who's, who's fallen flat on his face plenty of times, I totally agree. Just do it. It's not as painful as it might seem, and you definitely learn a lot from it. Agreed. Cool, John. So can you can you tell everybody where we can learn more about Ghost and more about you in particular? Definitely. So Ghost you can find on ghost.org, uh, all spelled the regular way. It's great pains to get that domain. <laughs> um, you can find more about me and all the links to all of my things uh, on john.onolan.org which is my personal site and blog and i've just started a youtube channel i'm making videos now which is terrifying but all the links to all that kind of stuff is there so yeah if you want to hear more things like this or see me talking about more things like this that's probably where it's all going to be and it would be great to hang out or send me a message on twitter and we can talk awesome thanks so much for joining me on the Hackers podcast it's been a pleasure thanks for having me If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, you should join me and a whole bunch of other indie hackers and entrepreneurs on the IndieHackers.com forum, where we talk about things like how to come up with a good idea and how to find your first paying customers. Also, if you're working on a business or a product of your own, it's a great place to come and get feedback from the community on what you're working on. Again, that's www.IndieHackers.com slash forum. Thanks, and I'll see you guys next time.